to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7. Sunday night we uh, go through in some order or another the whole Bible, and uh, currently in the book of Matthew, we want to look at a small section of this uh, passage that we'll be looking at, uh, a larger, larger section of it this evening. We want to look at two specific verses this morning for a little more in-depth consideration. If you're with us this morning you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and you just wave and they'll get a Bible into your hands. It'll be marked to our passage uh, so you can find it easily. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Our Lord Jesus speaking, and he declared, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for every line, every jot, every tittle, every precept of your word. And we realize that every bit of it is in your book because it's intended to do something inside of our lives, something real, something big, something eternal. And we pray that your word this morning would do that in our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit presence of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you would give us a heightened ability to hear your voice and, Lord, to uh, give an attention to your word that it is due, an attention that comes from your Holy Spirit. Would you speak to us personally from these two verses? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus closes his Sermon on the Mount with a series of very, very strong warnings and strong exhortations. And uh, most of the time, you, when you close out a sermon, you're told to close it out with some great encouragement or whatever, and apparently he didn't go to the schools or the seminaries to teach you that. And he doesn't do it um, uh, for effect. It's... He, He closes out with this kind of strength because of the sobriety of the things which he is talking about. He did not, and he certainly does not today, want this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, to be viewed in the way that many people view it today, and that is this kind of a nice little religious talk on morality and how to be nice to one another uh, uh, that people can say, well, that was nice that Jesus taught that. It's a beautiful piece of literature. Someone ought to have said this in human history. And then people go on about their lives and feel completely free to uh, heed it or ignore it completely as they choose. Or the idea that it's a sermon that is to be studied in depth and then, you know, admired from a distance. That we don't really need to allow it to impact the nitty-gritty of our daily lives. Instead, Jesus both taught the sermon and he concluded the sermon with a majestic sobriety for the simple reason that life and death are at stake concerning what a person does with Jesus Christ and with his teaching. And in this passage, Jesus speaks of two gates, one narrow and one broad. He speaks of two roads, one difficult with relatively few people traveling on it, one broad, which is heavily traveled by many people. He speaks of two destinations, One road that leads to life and another road that leads to destruction. Each and every one of us in this room this morning is a product of our decision-making. And I think that it's very sobering to realize that every decision that we make in life causes us to go through some gate and places us on some road. And that that road that it places us on then leads to some destination 
in life, whether for good or whether for bad. The book of Proverbs warns us repeatedly that every decision that we make in life puts us on a path of some kind, a path that will then take us somewhere. And it is so important to view our decisions in life in that way. So often we make decisions very casually. We make them very carelessly. And we don't realize what Jesus is telling us here, and that is that our decisions put us on paths that then lead us ultimately to some destination. And it's so important to view decisions that way, to ask myself, what path does this decision put me on, and where then does this path lead? Because we live in a nation today, we live in a culture today in which so little decision-making today, whether on a national level or on an individual level, is made with the future in mind. No one can look at the decisions that are being made in Washington today and conclude that these decisions are being made out of anything longer in terms of a scope of time than the next election cycle. Nobody can look at these decisions and say these are decisions that are intended to be good decisions for this nation, though hard decisions for the next 50 years or the next 100 years. No decisions there are being made on that basis. But they get away with it because on an individual level, increasingly, the decisions that people make individually are just decisions that are made emotionally. This is what I feel like doing at the moment, and very little consideration is made to the fact that this decision puts me on a path, it puts me on a course course that is going to then take me someplace, that decisions need to be carefully thought out, and they need to be carefully made. Well, there's very little of that going on, relatively speaking, uh, in the world that we live in today and certainly in the nation that we uh, live in today. That verse in Proverbs, that's repeated, but one of the places it's located in is Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. To not only look at the decision that's immediately before me, but where does that decision take me? And where does it end? And one of the great things to do is to look at someone who has made at the fork in the road the decision to go this way and then someone else the decision to go this way years before you hit that fork and then to look at their lives and to say where in the world did that decision take each one? What quality of life uh, came into their being as a result of it? Every one of us in the course of our lives, where we end up in life is a result of the decisions that we make in life, whether it is the accomplished or the successful surgeon or author or musician or business persons. No one ever reaches the pinnacle of their fields haphazardly. It never just happens that way. This happens at the far end of a long season of hard work and good decision-making. And the person who ends up, for instance, at the other end of the spectrum, in prison, incarcerated for the rest of his or her life, that doesn't happen just out of thin air. How in the world did this happen to me? I can't believe that this happened to me. And uh, so often people think that because, again, so little thought is given to the seriousness of the decisions uh, that we make. But these things don't happen out of thin air. Uh, that ends, uh, that's the byproduct of a person's decision-making. No one escapes this. We are all the product of our decisions in life. I remember when Karen and I were new Christians at Calvary Chapel in Napa, they put on a, a children's program that was great for children and for adults. It was called Antsylvania. And uh, all of the, it had a bunch of insects that had these parts and everything. It was very clever uh, at the time and no doubt still is. But they had all of these different parts. And the whole thrust of Ansylvania, this dramatic drama presentation, was you win or lose by the way you choose. 
you win or lose by the way you choose. And I sat in that room as an adult, and I thought, I need to hear this. How much more the kids that were jammed into that room to have that message uh, lodged in their heart. And that is the very same message that Jesus declares to us here. Now, choices are powerful things, and it is all the more sobering to realize that they not only determine where we end up in this life, but they also determine where we end up in the life to come, in eternity. And because so much is riding on our decision in terms of where we're going to spend eternity, here Jesus gives us all that we need to know in order to make the right decision concerning eternity. In fact, he plainly tells us what the decision is to enter in the narrow gate, and then he exhorts us uh, to make that decision. Now, when I was in school, the only thing that could be better than an open book test, I mean, when the teacher would announce, today it's going to be an open book test, it was like, wow, they uh, served us cupcakes or something. We're all so excited over The only thing better than an open book test is a test in which the teacher gives you the correct answer. And how much more is this true when our eternal destinations are at stake? Now, let's notice several things about our passage here. Number one, there are two gates in life. There aren't many gates in life. There are only two gates in life. And it looks like there are a lot of gates in life. But from the perspective of heaven, Jesus tells us there are only two. Well, what is a gate? A gate is essentially a means of access, a means of entrance. If you come to my house and you want to go into my backyard, you have to go through a gate that leads you from my front yard into my backyard. That gate allows an entrance into the backyard. And, of course, all of this was very common imagery for the people that Jesus was speaking to 2,000 years ago. It was a very rural society, very agrarian society. They had fields that were planted in all kinds of crops, and there were gates that you had to enter through in order to then come into those fields, get on the path that would then lead you from one place to another between the fields. What the narrow gate represents is it represents Jesus. Jesus is the gate. Elsewhere, Jesus taught concerning himself in John chapter 10. He said, all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. He declared, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Jesus in John chapter 14 declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. I am the way for our purposes this morning. The truth and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the means by which we access life as God intends it to be for man. He is the way in which we access forgiveness of sins, we access uh, salvation, we access a relationship with God that doesn't end at the end of this life but then extends into all of eternity. And Jesus is the way to enter into all of that. And he is the only way. Now, the broad gate represents the... It's the gate that people pass through when they refuse to put their faith in Jesus for salvation when they refuse to put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and for everlasting life. And people do that for a lot of different reasons, but it is still the same gate that they're entering uh, through and doing so. Some of the reasons that Jesus is rejected met very often out of pride. What do you mean I'm a sinner? and in need of salvation. I'm better than all of my neighbors. I'm the finest person that I know. I say, all right, case closed. I rest my case. Pride keeps people out of heaven. Uh, from going, uh, sometimes it, the, the rejection of Jesus and the entering into the broad gate comes out of self-will. People don't want to submit to anyone else in life, not even God himself. Sometimes it's the love of sin. Uh, or the love of pleasure, or materialism. Sometimes it's even religion, a religion that rejects a faith in Christ 
for salvation. All of these things are represented in the broad gate. Notice, too, that these two gates, these two decisions, each of them puts us on a path in life. And I want you to notice, again, there are only two paths in life, not many paths in life. A lot of people believe that. A lot of people teach that. There are many, many paths in life, and all of them lead to God, and they all ultimately lead into heaven. But Jesus declares it isn't true. There are only two paths in life. I want you to notice once again that these two paths lead to two different destinations. Not many destinations, only two destinations. And critically, not just one destination, but two destinations. And the reason that's important to understand is that there's this prevailing idea among many, many people today that it doesn't matter what kind of a life a person lives. In the end, we all end up in the same place. We all end up in the same destination. We all end up in uh, heaven or some state of nothingness reabsorbed into the great cosmic force. But according to Jesus, none of that is true either. Jesus declares that the narrow gate and the difficult path leads to life. And he's talking about everlasting life. In this vein, the Holy Spirit declared through the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 5. And this is the testimony John wrote, that God has given us everlasting life. And this life is in his Son He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Jesus also declares that those who choose the broad road, they in turn put themselves on a path that leads to destruction. That is an everlasting judgment uh, for sin and everlasting death. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. And so again, it's prudent, the prudent person who stops at some point in their life. And for some of you, that may be you, the first time you're thinking about these kind of things, even today in this room. The prudent person who stops at some point in their life, some point in their journey on their path, and they ask themselves, where does this path that I am on lead? What happens after life? What happens at the end of all of these decisions that I'm making? And when I have my answer and everybody comes up with their own idea, everyone has an idea about what happens at the end of their path. Most people have formulated that, at least that much. And then once I've got that in my mind, you know, we just end up in this great nothingness, you know, and we get absorbed by the life force of the universe or there is a heaven or there is a hell. Whatever conclusion a person comes to about the end of life to then, when you have that answer in your mind, to then ask yourself, by what authority can I know that my conclusion is true, since it's the most important decision a person will make in life. I want you to notice, too, that the narrow life, the true way of salvation found only in Jesus, is admittedly narrow. And it's fascinating to me that Jesus doesn't hide that fact at all. He's completely candid about it. And he, and he it, 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 unflinchingly declares it to be true. I remember I had a friend who grew up in a religious system and non-Christian cult, and uh, they had all kinds of things that you only learned after you became a part of the church, and then you went through these kind of secret rites and all this stuff, and they were very uh, non-upfront about what you were getting into. You only found out about it by degrees as they kind of indoctrinated you by degrees. Jesus never operated in darkness, only operated in the light. So he doesn't hide the fact at all that the gate is uh, narrow and that the way is difficult at all, didn't flinch in declaring it for the simple reason that he knows it to be true. Now, of course, in our culture that we live in, all of you are acutely aware of this, narrowness concerning 
anything, but especially concerning things moral and spiritual, is anathema. It's just cursed to the deepest hell. I mean, it, not only is narrowness concerning morality or concerning salvation or concerning uh, anything spiritual unacceptable in our culture by and large, now it's become the cause for very active scorn and ridicule and persecution. And so to be narrow-minded concerning anything today is to be instantly categorized as bigoted and intolerant and small-minded and ignorant and so forth and so forth and so forth. This is the world you live in. You're familiar with it as well. To me, it is really a marvel. I'm 60 years old, so I'm not the old wise owl, but I have seen a little bit of life in terms of how the progression has occurred a little bit within our culture. To me, it's a marvel, really, to stop and to look at how successful some within our culture, some within our society have been at fashioning the thinking of the culture at large into equating narrowness of belief or narrow-mindedness as something that is bad and something that is even dangerous, something that has to be targeted, has to be attacked, it has to be destroyed as an enemy of mankind. And then at the same time, casting broadness or broad-mindedness as something that is always good, always progressive, always something superior. These are the marks, broad-mindedness and broadness of belief and all, the marks of someone who is very well educated and has a broad life experience and truly enlightened. And, of course, all of this is nonsense on a practical level. Living in our heads. Allow me to give you just some examples from life where we not only tolerate narrowness, but we expect it. We demand it. We like our pharmacists to be narrow-minded, don't we? They don't get the prescription and declare, and declare as they stare at it and talk to the prescription. The doctor prescribed a hundred of such and such a pill. That seems very narrow-minded to me, if you ask me. So I'm going to add some of these blue ones, a few pinks, a half a dozen oranges here. And uh, I'm going to, because this one, you know, particular kind of pill, that's narrow-minded. If you survived this doctor, this pharmacist's broad-mindedness, you'd probably sue the living daylights out of him or her. I'll tell you, I like my air traffic controllers and uh, my pilots to be narrow-minded. If a pilot's given instruction from the air traffic controller to land on runway 17, I want him to land that plane or her on runway 17. So if I'm in first class and I hear some kind of an argument going on on the other side of the door there and the pilot is talking to the air traffic controller and declaring uh, that it seems very narrow-minded to him that he has to land on just one runway at the airport and he's going to be much more broad-minded than that and he's going to land wherever he wants. If you heard a discussion like that going on, you would uh, page the first flight attendant that you could find and uh, tell her or him to let the pilot know that we would wish he'd be a little less broad-minded and a little more narrow-minded as a pilot. Because there are situations in life when narrow-mindedness is right and broad-mindedness is wrong and it's dangerous. I don't know about you, but I like my surgeons to be uh, narrow-minded. When they put me under, I want that surgeon to be very, very narrow-minded. So you go underneath the anesthesia, and, they, and you go in, and they're supposed to take out that appendix that's in danger of bursting. You awake in recovery. You ask the doctor, the surgeon, how did things go? He said, it went great. Oh, did you get that appendix out? Oh, we did better than that. I got in there and it just seemed so narrow-minded just to take out the appendix. So we grabbed a lung and a kidney and uh, grabbed your, uh, 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 half of your thyroid while we were in there uh, as well. And uh, here in, over in this jar over here, we've got your right eye. 
And everywhere you want to look in life, it rises up and it speaks to the folly of this idea, this simplistic thinking that narrow is always some kind of a wrong way of thinking and broad is always the right way. And you can carry these illustrations. I mean, they, they apply just as aptly to dentistry, <laughs> building contractors, the military, business everywhere. Why? Because we recognize that in many areas in life, being narrow-minded is life and death important in broad-mindedness or tolerance to be unwise and even dangerous. And the issue with Jesus and all of this, and what should be the issue with us, is not supremely whether something is broad or narrow, but whether something is true or not. And if broad is true concerning a particular subject, fabulous. If narrow is the truth about something else, then great. And Jesus is declaring here that concerning salvation, the path to God, everlasting life, heaven, that the truth is narrow and that the gate is narrow and that the way is difficult. And that if we are able to accept the wisdom and even the necessity of narrowness in all of these other areas in our life, then we should have the same willingness to accept the wisdom and necessity of a narrow salvation. I, I think it is important to check the credentials of everyone who is weighing in on whether the way to heaven is broad or narrow. The credentials, and no shortage of voices speaking authoritatively about life and death and the hereafter. Everybody's got an opinion, and everybody can tweet it today or blog it today or mass email it today. But to just stop and check the credentials of everyone who's weighing in on whether the way to heaven is narrow or broad. So in one corner you have all of the secular and even religious people who think nothing of ridiculing and rejecting the idea that there's only one way to heaven and that that way is through faith in Jesus. And then on the other corner of the discussion, there is Jesus himself declaring the gate to be narrow, the path to be difficult, and that, but that that path leads to life. I would contend that Jesus is uniquely qualified in all of human history to speak with authority on the subject, and that man, any man, all men, the best of men, are utterly unqualified to do so. Which of them has come to the earth from heaven itself? Which of them can speak of their first-hand knowledge of heaven? How many prophecies did the Holy Spirit give concerning any of them being born into the world in order to give the world a heads-up to listen to them as an authority on eternity or on anything. After having lived 33 years under the severest scrutiny of, of mankind possible, how many of them could then pose the question as Jesus did to his enemies, which of you convicts me of sin and have that question met with complete silence? How many of them have taught a sermon that influenced the whole world, changed human history? What book concerning their life and wisdom has become the best-selling book in human history by far and then has been used by the Holy Spirit to change lives by the hundreds and hundreds of millions of which of them has God the Father declared, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. 
Let them speak to us of all of the miracles that they have performed. Let them speak to us of all of those that they have raised from the dead. Let them speak to us of their own personal resurrection, their own verifiable victory over death and over hell and over the devil. And again, on and on we could go. Now, for all of the talk and all of the bluster today, Jesus stands alone in his qualifications to speak authoritatively on this issue. And I think that a better use of time is not to spend it arguing over whether the gate or the road is narrow or broad in this regard, but rather in being thankful that there is a way of salvation at all. I think that that better suits mankind. It certainly better suits me as a sinner. And I'm so thankful that there is a way to be saved at all. I don't need ten ways. I don't need a hundred ways. I just need one way. And I'm thankful that there's a way. A number of years ago, I watched one of those shows where, you know, these disaster shows where they show the professionals coming in and rescuing people from some kind of a fix that they find themselves in. And there was a flash flood that came in somewhere in the southwest of the United States of America. And a guy was in his car and he got caught. This water came so quickly that he got uh, caught in this place, low spot where the water just engulfed his car and, and, and he couldn't move it any further. He climbs out of the window, gets up on the top of his car, and he's clinging to hold on. And while they're running this whole, uh, somebody filming this thing, you can watch as the minutes are going by, the water is rising and rising and rising. Ultimately, it's going to engulf the whole car. The time that he has, the luxury that he has to be holding on to the roof of his car is something that is slipping away from him rapidly. And, uh, and he would drown with the, the way the water was raging. And so the helicopters come in, these professionals, these rescue people come in. It takes them several passes. The wind is going on because all of the water is the result of a storm. They're trying to get the place in there where they can drop the harness to the guy. And they finally get into the place and they drop it down to him. And the bullhorn is calling on him to uh, strap himself into the harness. And, and as, as that harness came and he, and you know how the tension of it is, it comes close, you know, three or four times and he's grabbing at it, but he can't fall off. And he, you know, you're at the edge of your seat and he finally is able to grab a hold of the harness. And then finally, we can all take a deep breath, all of us that are watching the show and all. And what did he do with the harness? You're only going to send me one harness? There's only one harness that takes me to the helicopter? You send me an orange harness? I want a blue harness. I want a red harness. I want a green harness. How narrow of you to send me one harness for my rescue. No, that's not what he did at all. He grabbed that harness and he strapped himself in it so fast. He was thankful there was one way of salvation. It was a true way of salvation. And ultimately they pulled him up into that helicopter. And that's how I feel. I'm just thankful that God has provided a way to be saved. And I don't have the slightest problem, and I don't understand the problem that others have with it, that there is just one way to heaven. I'm just so thankful that there is a way. And for those of you who sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you have not yet put your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and entered into that gate and put yourself on the path that he has for you, the one that he knows leads to heaven at the end of this life. These are super important truths that we're looking at this morning. You see, somebody's right and somebody's wrong. Somebody's right and somebody's wrong. Either Jesus is right 
and all of these other people are wrong, or all of these other people are wrong, and Jesus is right. And I think Jesus is a unique voice in human history for speaking authoritatively to the issues. And you must choose which one you are going to believe and which gate you're going to enter into and which road you're going to put yourself on and your eternity rides upon the decision you're going to make. I've already made my decision. I've already made my decision. I can't make it for you. You don't want it to be make, me to make it for you. God doesn't want me to make it for you. You have to make that for yourself. And do you need a little help making that decision? In the confusion of so many voices in the world today. But Jesus makes it so simple for you. He says, enter by the narrow gate. And that's all you need to know. And he knows that that's all you need to know. How do you enter in by the narrow gate? By coming to God and saying, God, <clears throat> excuse me, I believe your assessment of me. <clears throat> I am a sinner. And I believe my sin has separated me from a relationship with you. But I believe that you love me so much that you sent your son into human history in order to die on the cross to pay the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of my sins. And that he was buried and he rose again on that third day. And I believe that he is the Savior that pleases you and that is the salvation that pleases you. And so I put my trust in him for the forgiveness of my sins. And when you do that, the Holy Spirit will come into your life and you're born again by the Holy Spirit. You've entered in through the narrow gate and it puts you on the path that then leads to everlasting life. And you notice he says to enter into the gate. Jesus doesn't say study the gate. He doesn't say analyze the mechanisms of the gate and congregate around the gate. He doesn't say, look, I'm closer to the gate than you're closer to the gate. He says to enter into the gate. And we enter in by putting our faith in him. And that takes us through the gate. A lot of people, and it might be one or two of us in the room here today, a lot of people know a lot about Jesus. Maybe you've been raised in church, exposed to an awful lot concerning him. But you've never made him your Savior and your Lord. Or maybe you weren't raised in church, but you've learned a little bit about him here and there. And what you've learned is accurate. And there's a whole world of people. This is why I'm bringing it up. There's a whole world of people who believe they're going to go to heaven by virtue of the fact that they actually believe all the right things concerning him. But it's possible to believe all the right things concerning him and still stop short of trusting in him for the forgiveness of my sins and then becoming his disciple. The Bible says that the demons, the whole demonic realm, not, they, they, they believe, they know more about Jesus than we know about him. And they believe all of it. And yet not one of them is going to end up in heaven. It is more than just knowing. If you sit here today and you say, you know, I know an awful lot. And in fact, all of my life I have believed all of these things about him. But no, I cannot, if you press me, I cannot stop and say that there was a point in time where I've trusted in Jesus, asked him for the forgiveness of my sins, and then committed to becoming his disciples. And so today's the day for you to do that. And as Jesus encourages you and exhorts you to enter in through the narrow gate, I think it's very, very important to understand that though the gate is narrow, anyone can come through it. 
Anyone can come through it. Everyone can come through it. It's a narrow way, but it excludes no one. That's what people think. They think it's narrow, so it unjustly excludes people as a result. Not this gate, not this narrowness. It is a narrow gate, but no one is turned away from entering into that gate. It is narrow in how to be saved, but it is not narrow at all in who can be saved. Anyone and everyone can be saved. This teaching of Jesus carries an important message, not only to those who aren't Christians as yet, as I've laid it out, but the sermon is actually directed toward Christians. And it has a message for us as Christians. And the message is to us is that it is so vital in this season. It's always been this way for 2,000 years, one way or another. But we're in the season that we're in. But it speaks to us as Christians today that it's so vital in this season of moral and spiritual insanity in our world that we do, that we accept and hold on to this truth concerning salvation. You look at, look at the, and I, and I don't mean to be cruel, but you look at the, you look at how confused our nation is concerning uh, Bruce slash Caitlin. You're going to attempt to redefine male and female woman and man independent of chromosomes and science and we're not going to redefine this on the basis of what somebody feels somebody very troubled feels about themselves it wasn't that long ago that you would look at somebody like that, and I trust we do, with tremendous compassion, and recognize this is a person who is deeply troubled and need of tremendous help. But let's give that person the help they need, but let's not throw male and female into the mix for redefinition on the basis of his particular situation or anyone else that finds themselves in the same place. People are confused. Everything is thrown up into the air. Nothing can be right anymore. Nothing can be wrong anymore. But there's no future in it. This same atmosphere, the spiritual and moral atmosphere of the nation that we live in right now, it may continue on the course that it's on and grow gradually worse and not see a turnaround in my lifetime. History's like that. Sometimes these cycles extend beyond an individual's person's life, lifetime, but it cannot go on indefinitely. Sooner or later, it makes a place where, uh, where what is right, when it's cast away, there are consequences for rejecting right. And ultimately, it is a foundation that, uh, that lives or a nation is built upon or a world that ultimately has to collapse. But somebody has to stay sane morally and spiritually, while the world around us is doing their experiment. And God calls upon us as Christians to stay true to God's truth that never hurts anyone, it never harms anyone, and especially to stay true to the truth that we're looking at this morning, the most important truth that Jesus ever spoke because it has to do with our eternities. 
And so Jesus is speaking to us as Christians and speaking about the narrowness of the gate, the difficulty of the way and all, broadness of the gate, the broadness of the way that leads to destruction in order to remind us that it is our charge to stay true to Jesus' message and his message of salvation, even if the whole world is abandoning at the moment, because either Jesus is going to come back and take us to be with him at the rapture, or this all boomerangs somewhere, and it all comes back to where it ought to be. It is the cycle of history, not only physically, not only morally, but spiritually. And today, in the middle of all of the chaos, as things are getting destabilized, and I talk about not economically, I'm talking about morally and spiritually, which is the realm that I'm called to address in the city and in the world that I live in. The more chaotic things become, as as they have become and look to only become worse, then you're, you're going to have individual people for whom the light is going to go on. There's going to be consequences that people are going to be, be paying for the decisions that they've made before the decisions that the culture has accommodated for them. I don't hate these people. I love these people. I want every sinner to be saved. I'm thankful that God saved a goofed-up sinner like I was. I'm, I'm no better than anybody else. Nobody's any worse than me. And so the world that we live in here, there are still people waiting to hear of God's offer of salvation in Jesus, and they will respond when they do, just like we did, and then we experience the miracle that no longer makes this a spiritual or a philosophical debate as we're talking about it today. The witness of the truth of this comes into our life by the Holy Spirit, and we know the miracle that we are is an evidence of the truthfulness of what Jesus has said. And for us to realize that the world that we live in, as far as it's moving away from all of these things, only means that it needs the miracle more than ever. But if we deviate on the message, and we do, and there is so much pressure to do it, you see, I mean, I don't know who the equivalent of Larry King is anymore on television. I don't know if anybody's doing those interviews anymore. I think that Pierce Morgan or whatever, he's gone now. But... Larry King would get these religious leaders on. He was Jewish. And he would get the Christians on there. And he would always ask them, Do you mean to tell me that Jesus is the only way? And the idea is, Are you so dark and ignorant and illiterate and small as to believe that? And it was interesting to watch about half the time. They would cave. We say, well, you know, Larry, that's not really my place, and I really don't know, and I think that God and all of this kind of stuff. And you get Jerry Falwell on there. However much or whatever you like or not about Jerry Falwell, he never faltered in that place. You look at Larry and say, I believe that. Absolutely. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. You get Franklin Graham on there today. He doesn't even wait. It didn't even when he, Larry talked with him, he wouldn't even wait for Larry to ask him. Franklin, how are you doing? I'm doing great because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's great. How's your wife? She's doing great because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him. I mean, you got that group, but we all understand what the other group is going through. We all want to be liked. We all want to be accepted. We all want to have people love the Savior that we love. And so all these things that we can be tempted to begin to compromise on. Some group of people stayed faithful to this message and to this gospel so that one day each of us could hear it And God's Holy Spirit could bear witness to it in a way that only he can. And we ended up the miracle of the life that is ours. 
And now it's our time to step up into that same place with that same confidence that God will and is doing that all over the world today. But to change that gospel, now you've moved to something that there isn't that power in. I think of the Apostle Paul who faced all of the scorn and rejection and of really both secular and religious uh, men in staying true to the gospel. And he wrote of all of this. He said, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The Jews request a sign, and the Greeks, the highly educated, seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And Paul declared further in his letter to the church at Rome, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so it is, and so it shall always be, it and it alone. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts that you provided a way for us to be saved and to be forgiven of our sins and to enter into the relationship that we were created for with you. You didn't have to do it but you did it. And we thank you that in the ransacking of all of the universe, that though there was but one way for us to be saved, and the sacrifice of your sinless Son, you were willing to do it for us. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts this morning for our Savior and for our salvation and for what the good news found in him has done in our lives. We thank you for the miracle that we are as Christians and that in this life we are only scratching the surface of the glory of where this salvation takes us further yet. Thank you, Father. And as we just continue in a spirit of prayer, I want to 